0: This conversation on COVID 19 is made possible by discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 30 of Inside COVID 19. In this episode, granular research by Business for South Africa concludes that the economy can contract by a staggering 17% this year. We'll hear from the money manager whose plea to the president to open up the country has gone viral. A UK professor explains why our species has become so obsessed with fake news in this time of coronavirus. And there's growing evidence that in Africa... Virus instigated lockdowns do more harm than good. Inside COVID-19 from Business News. First in the COVID-19 headlines today, Business for South Africa said there is an urgent need to accelerate the restart of the economy. Board member Martin Kingston says hardship, hunger and desperation could threaten the rule of law and thus impact South Africa's capacity to respond to the pandemic. He says there is every reason to believe a safe return to work will be successfully achieved. More on that story coming up in interviews with Business for South Africa's health work group lead, Stavros Nikolaou, and Taste de Toy, the money manager whose impassioned video, which pleads for a reopening of the economy, has gone viral. A number of long-standing players in South Africa's media industry are down for the count. Last week, Associated Media Publishing, which produces Cosmopolitan, House and Leisure and Good Housekeeping magazines, announced its immediate closure. Yesterday, Habitat magazine, which has produced 276 issues since its creation 37 years ago, said it too would be closing down. In the same vein, media group Caxton announced yesterday it would be closing its magazine division as a direct consequence of the impact of the COVID-19 lockdown on the ability of magazine publishers to trade normally with a high level of advertising cancellations. Caxton said titles affected are Borna, Country Life, Essentials, Food and Home, Garden and Home, People, Roy Rosa, Faroakir, Woman and Home and Your Family. Another company has joined the hall of COVID-19 profiteering shame and today agreed to pay a fine of 5.9 million rands relating to excessive pricing of face masks. A statement today from the competition tribunal says Matus, a supplier of tools and protective gear, admitted it increased its profit margins for dust face masks during February and March this year. Apart from the fine, Matus has also agreed to make a contribution to the Solidarity Fund for COVID-19 and to immediately reduce the profit margin on its masks. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has cleared for emergency use an antibody test from Swiss pharma giant Roche. The company says its test has proven 100% correct in detecting antibodies in the bloodstream and 99.8% accurate when determining whether antibodies were not present. This is the 10th commercially available test to be approved, but by far the best, with most of the others criticized for low levels of accuracy. Governments around the world believe a reliable test would enable them to gauge how much of the population is still susceptible to the virus, and thus take informed decision on lifting and applying lockdowns. Some have even considered issuing immunity passports to allow those with antibodies in their blood to return to work. We'll be hearing later in this episode about those shocking GDP contraction forecasts from the healthcare stream lead at Business for South Africa, but Stavros Nikolau is also an executive at Aspen, which today announced a gift of 600 internet-enabled tablets to medical students at the University of Pretoria. Here's the motivation.
1: With the lockdown, it it meant that the the medicine and and other health sciences curricula would grind to a halt. It would mean you wouldn't get the next generation of doctors, pharmacists, other healthcare workers coming out of Taki's University uh, next year. It would have left a a massive gap. As it is, we're under-resourced when it comes to, to doctors and other health workers. And this would have left a gap. Uh, It would have put immense pressure on the university because how do you start taking in your next intake into first year when you haven't completed, your sixth year students haven't left? We saw this as a double opportunity. First of all, contributing towards the curriculum going on. But secondly, I think it's a big digital opportunity for doctors and you can start moving into the bio, as we call it, the bio-digital age which allows you to start finding solutions, probably including around COVID and other similar pandemics using bio-digital platforms. So I think it was a really good initiative from that point as well.
0: So 600 tablets, are they going just to six, six years?
1: They're actually not. So the the approach was very much to identify which of those students are presently disadvantaged. Many of these students are there on a scholarship Many of them come from incredibly disadvantaged backgrounds and they would have to have dropped out of this year, whatever year they were in. It's spread amongst the health sciences students. Most of them are doctors, but it does cover some of the other disciplines. And it's it's been confined or targeted, if you wish, to those students that are disadvantaged that would have dropped out had we have not intervened.
2: Inside COVID-19, from Biz News.
0: Taste the Toy is well-known in South Africa as a asset manager, the man who was for a long time the head of Coronation Fund Managers, in fact, built it up uh, primarily into a leading money manager in South Africa. Taste, you, you left there a little while ago uh, and now have a business called Rootstock Investments.
3: So, yes, I was fortunate to have been part of a success story. Um, I then stepped down some 10 years ago and wanted to sort of paddle my own canoe but as you may know, you attract youngsters that that have ambitions to grow the business. So Rootstock has now outgrown just a call it a family asset manager, and that was actually part of the reason why there was a, a a webcast or a webinar, because the youngsters would would like to attract outside clients. And I've sort of taken a step back and I'm a non-executive, so that's where Rootstock comes from.
0: The the purpose for this conversation is to try and unpack why you believe, that South Africa's economy should be reopened and reopened with, with some speed?
3: Yeah. I think, Alec, maybe I should give you a bit of background again. Um, the Bureau for Economic Research in Stellenbosch has asked a number of people, what do we do once the economy is open? Um, what are the sort of incentives that we should provide, et etc.? et cetera? And we as a team sort of thought of, of incentives, i.e. the focus was on what do we do once the economy is open to get it going? It's a very sensitive thing to call for opening of the economy because it's that lo- balance between lives and livelihood. And I'm not um, a medical practitioner and, and, and there's so much information and we need to take our cue from the rest of the world. And I think that our leadership um, initially was quite powerful and I was very impressed with what had been done. But one cannot be blind to what is happening to the, the economy around us and we are a poor country. Getting poorer by the day, so we need to do extraordinary things to get the economy going uh, once it's opened up.
0: But I was talking today with one of the executives at uh, Business for South Africa, and their extrapolation now is that the economy is going to contract by 17% this year. Reserve Bank, yeah. these are big numbers.
3: Yeah, I was I was absolutely um, staggered um, to hear and see that motor car sales and round numbers for the month of April is down from 36,000 to 600. I'm, I'm rounding those numbers down to the closest sort of hundred, um, but a staggering number. Obviously, once the economy is opened up again, I would like to think that there's, that is going to recover, but I'm very concerned. And, and, and I, if you listen to the first bit, I'm about to become a grandfather soon. So I think what does the Af- South Africa look like for, for our children? And um, one of my daughters as a, as a small business in eventing and catering, and that obviously is it, the likelihood that it will employ the three, four, five people that it did once the economy is opened up is unless they get a friendly loan uh, is is remote. Um, so the, the the damage to small and medium sized enterprises is is huge, and the fiscal hole that we find ourselves in is is going to be big. Um, and that's why I find the issue around tobacco sales so staggering because excise duties is a big part of government's revenue. But um, it really is about the whole, in the, in the fiscus and how do we mend that and how do we get the economy going? And I was, uh, I believe that ultimately small and medium-sized businesses actually, or the entrepreneurs actually drive the economy because big companies, and very few of our big companies are in growth phases, are laying people off. And then we've got a very big civil service and the civil service, as you know, tax comes in on the one, po- into the one pocket and goes out the other pocket. So the net Contributors to tax is actually, let's call it business South Africa or small businesses in South Africa. And what do we do to get them going? And hence my couple of suggestions that I conveyed or that I put well, forward at the time.
0: Take them through us uh, or take us through those suggestions. Not yeah. the one about, about cutting public servants' salaries, <laughs> because everyone in the private sector is
3: feeling yeah, I've, I've also got a daughter that's a doctor, and she's a medical doctor, and she's obviously a civil servant. <laughs> And she is quite secure of a job, and so most um, civil servants are secure of their in, in their jobs, and um, they make out a very big percentage of our economy so if we don't have revenue on the one side um we need to make sure that our expenses is, is kept as low as possible And the in the civil service salary bill is a, is a big one, and there obviously the unions are lobbying on behalf of of of, of the workers, and the likelihood that 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 we're going to see salary c- cuts. I'd like to think that there is a likelihood, but I suppose that's quite small. Um, so that was one of the, the suggestions. I think the, the one that didn't come across, and I, and I should have mentioned that at the time, is that um, it's a very sensitive one, but we would like to employ as many people as possible, which means that the whole issue of minimum wage is, is an issue. Um, but the, the bit that I hadn't added is I think that uh, in South Africa there's corporate greed and i think that some ceos are grossly overpaid um and all of us be it at the bottom be it at the top need to come to the party um so there are a number of things that that i think that we that we can do obviously wastage uh, and throwing good money money after bad is is one of the very obvious ones um and it's all about what's happening to state owned enterprises i mean close them fix them sell them but we cannot continue to throw money um after those and, and obviously, there are strategic services that we need to keep afloat. But again, uh, we need to make sure that it's done so without corruption. And that brings me to, to one of the other points, is that um, we need to see prosecution. If, if we have corruption, be it in the state sector or in the private sector, it needs to be prosecuted. Um, and we, we've seen probably the two biggest corruption fraud cases in South Africa, the one we're all familiar with, um, that state capture, and I, there seems to be some movement and then the other one is the biggest corporate fraud that we saw in South Africa, which is Steinoff. Um, and you may ask me, but how does that um, all stack up? Ultimately, uh, it's about the savings in the country, because if you have savings, you can deploy that to get yourself out of the hole. But if your savings base is eroded, then you have less savings to get yourself out of the hole.
0: In your uh, summary, you said that referring to Steinoff in particular, that there are people who perpetrated the fraud and they are staying, they're walking around a boulders brass, uh, and haven't been arrested, and in fact haven't even been charged.
3: No, it, I mean, I, I think we all are familiar with the content of the PwC report. The PwC report is, is very clear. I mean, firstly, when you talk about 300000000000 billion that's been lost, that's obviously the market cap. How do you create a market cap? You have earnings plus a multiple, and the earnings were inflated, which basically means it's fraudulent. And who were in charge at the time. I think it's commonly known, and those must be the perpetrators, per- perpetrators, and they have been fingered at. Nothing has been proven in a court of law. They haven't been charged. I find it staggering that there has been no investigation or or no. charge? No, I'm, I'm sure that an investigation is taking place, and I'm sure it's complex. But soon it'll be three years. I mean, we we, we two and a half years after the uh, fraud, and nothing has, seems to have happened. That again is a is an issue. Uh, in terms of confidence, investor confidence. If we if we don't sort of prosecute and we can't sort of get the culprits, um, then you create an environment that's prone to to corruption, and, and that's that's unfortunate.
0: Tess, we understand that the wheels of justice do grind slowly, but they apparently grind very finely. Is this not just a a, a timing issue?
3: Let, let's hope so. I I, I think that resources have been put towards the National Prosecuting Authority and I've got the highest regard for the two people that are in the senior positions um, and I'm sure that they've got a lot to do so let's hope that uh, that ultimately um, the, 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 the perpetrators or the, 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 the arm of the law the, will get to them um, and that we will see prosecutions.
0: And as far as the State Capture Project is concerned, we've had progress there but I guess the Zondo Commission is now in uh, in recess because of COVID-19.
3: Yeah. And, and again, I think that the the, 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 the amounts of money that um, has been wasted there, and, and, and again, there are various sort of estimates. But it, when you listen to the Zondo Commission, when you read what had happened there with the way that uh, people had been sort of bribed with cash that's been paid out, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, the, the tender process, the the, the, the beneficiaries—it's it's just staggering.
0: Uh, if you had half an hour with Cyril Mapoza on a Zoom call, what would you what would the thrust of your meeting be?
3: Yeah, I I, I, I would say to him, Mr. President, you've you've done a tremendous job. Um, you've got the support of I think all South Africans, and ultimately we need to build a South Africa that's good for all of us. Um, and um, I'd like to say to him that we need to create an environment where business can prosper because ultimately they employ the people, we want people to be employed, we want to see economic growth, we want to gather taxes, and we want to to, to build a, a prosperous South Africa. Um, I think that one of the things that is not my idea, but that is quite an interesting one is um, a friend of mine had said we, we need to find new heroes. Um, And maybe we should try and and, and determine who those new heroes are going to be. And his suggestion was that those that employ people are going to be the new heroes. And maybe we should have a medal parade after three or five years and give a bronze medal to someone that employed 100 people. Your business um, employing quite a number of people. Then a silver medal for those that employ 1,000 people and a gold medal for those that employ 10,000 people let's actually acknowledge those individuals um, uh, going forward as, as the heroes of the post-war, the post-COVID war, um, and those are the people that have actually assisted us in, in getting back on economic sort of track. Inside COVID-19, from Biz News. Avros Nikola joins
0: us again after being with us three weeks ago. He is the stream lead for the public health sector, in business for South Africa, but his day job is as he's, as senior executive for strategic trade at Aspen. Last time we spoke, uh, we focused a lot on PPEs. The situation then was it needed to source lots of this for the frontline workers. That was three weeks ago. Can you give us an update?
1: When we last spoke, we were very much in, in emergency mode in, in a situation where we had to get our hands on as much PPE as we could. The global stocks were dwindling, the domestic stocks were dwindling, doctors, nurses, other healthcare professionals were even threatening a strike, understandably so. Uh, So we were very much in that emergency phase and we sort of had a three week horizon to to get the levels up to some type of uh, stable uh, stock situation in the country. so from when I last spoke to you to date, we've been able to source around 900 million rand worth of PPE. Um, that equates to uh, just shy of 50 million pieces of PPE. And that includes things like masks, gloves, N95 masks, gowns, and, and the likes thereof. Uh, we have got an ongoing order book. Of course, we work very closely with our partners. Some of our partners include the donor funds, such as the Solidarity Fund, the Motsepe Family Foundation, NASPERS, the SPIRE Fund, which is an FRB, First Rain Bank initiative. So we work very closely with those partners. And ultimately, the beneficiaries here are the frontline doctors and other healthcare workers who are basically our only line of defence most of this inventory has gone to, to the provinces. Uh, in in between and uh, in between all of this, Treasury has issued a note opening up opportunity for other suppliers, which is a very important element to all of this because we don't we, we want to be in a position where we're the only suppliers, I think you've got to open it up, to have other suppliers so that you not only diversify the risk but also more importantly, we're now moving into arguably a more difficult phase where the economic realities are starting to hit home. The economic realities are are, are as bad, quite frankly, as when we last spoke, Alec. I think when we last spoke we said the, the contraction in the economy could be anything between ten and twenty percent. Business for South Africa has attached a, a number of seventeen percent after some significant economic modelling. That's a number we come we've come out at and it's uh, it's a very worrying number. We were already on the back foot because of the uh, the two downgrades we experienced and uh, this situation with its accompanying job losses, some people are saying could be as high as seven million uh, people losing their jobs, places us in a in, in a very, very difficult situation as a country. SARS have reported an under collection uh that's expected or forecasted of two hundred and fifty billion Rand or more. These are all very, very worrying signs at a very difficult time. And um part of part of sourcing the PPE, and the PPE was sourced mainly from abroad, is that as part of the next phase we look to diversify into supporting where we can uh, SMEs, uh, black-owned businesses, but more importantly, a, a new stream of work that's been set up in Business for South Africa, which is an innovation, come repurposing uh, existing capacity um, to, to to get into some of these highly consumed products like PPEs that are going to be with us for some time to come. They're going to be this is not a two or three month process like we discussed last time. You can argue that the phase that we're looking at is from, uh, from let's say the 15th of March this year until such time as a vaccine is found, you're going to have different levels of up and down and adjustment. We're going to have to be very creative around how we commence and follow through on our economic recovery. And, uh, It's not an economic recovery that we can manage on our own because we are such a globalised community and it's also going to mean looking at export opportunities where we can.
0: The two issues there that are really concerning, the first of them is the point about the health workers. I did have a a discussion with an ICU doctor who said that what they realised from elsewhere in the world is up to 20% of them could die from COVID-19 because of the repeated um, exposure to this virus, the fact that you've got all this equipment that is now given to those frontliners would presumably massively improve the odds of them not um, having or adding to the mortality rates there. Alec,
1: you're making a very important point because The quite frankly, the only line of defence we've got against the uh, the virus and its uh, its broader manifestations is actually our healthcare workers, and it's primarily doctors, nurses, pharmacists. These are the health disciplines that are most exposed at the moment. And if you if you either have uh, doctors not properly protected and falling ill. Your, your your productivity levels, where you require them on the first line, are going to be severely dented. Secondly, um, it, it, it was seen in Italy and Spain, the morale starts dropping amongst uh, many of these uh, healthcare workers, and you, you need a highly motivated uh, cadre of healthcare workers on the front line to continue uh, on an unrelenting basis turning the tide against the pandemic. So you, you're quite you're quite right. There is concern. It's, it's going to remain for some time amongst healthcare workers. Well, you know, if I'm pitching up at work and I'm not protected, I'm putting my life on the line. Is it really worth me pitching up to work tomorrow morning if I cannot be properly protected? And that was for me probably the single biggest thing we had to do was – Secure stock on an emergency basis. It, it wasn't done on a perfect basis by any stretch of the imagination. But what we did is we, we succeeded, as I said, almost 50 million pieces. There's a long way still to go, and We still need to keep building the stock levels up. But what we did is I believe we, we to a degree raised the morale of the very people that are protecting us most.
0: Extraordinary. The second point, of course, is the one that you now – uh, have raised about the economy, 17% contraction. Those are, those are terrifying numbers. Uh, it'll take years and years for South Africa to regain that 17% at the current rate of growth. How did you get to that number within your modeling?
1: Business for South Africa is, is structured in a way where there are three levels of response. There's the health platform that I lead. There's a, a, a labor workplace platform They've been dealing with things like the URF, the compensation fund. The third platform is the economic platform. Amongst the areas that it looked at was integrating the, the health epidemiological model with the economic modelling, taking this down to a granular level by sector and that's the or overlaying the level four uh, back to work understanding that we've got And when you start overlaying that, you start making projections around how the economy would shrink. And and that's how we've done it. We've also done that level of modeling for another purpose. And we've used uh, geo mapping or or geospacing is that when we engage government, which we will on the, on the broader economic picture shortly, the way I understand it, we're able to give sense of real time data at a granular level district or ward understanding what businesses are set up what manufacturing plants are set up in those wards and it could give us a sense of how you also better start to manage the flow of employees back to the workplace, reduce the transmission but also I think give guidance to governments around how potentially you could be unlocking the economy more progressively Inside COVID-19 from Biz news
4: There are many conspiracy theories about the coronavirus that it was started in a lab in China and did not originate from a wet market in Wuhan, that 5G can spread the virus, to name but a few. People seem to be more drawn to conspiracy theories during the coronavirus outbreak, and these theories, there are many in South Africa as well, are readily shared on social media platforms. But why are people so keen to spread these theories? Dr. Daniel Jolly from the University of Northumbria in the UK, who specializes in conspiracy theories, explains why people believe in them.
5: Well, conspiracy theories arise in moments of crisis in society. It can be political change, it can be terrorist attacks. In essence, they bloom in periods of uncertainty when we feel threatened. Now, these are all um, circumstances based around a virus outbreak. So COVID-19 fits that particular example. It's a crisis. We're all feeling anxious and uncertain, which means that we're more drawn to conspiracy narratives, where we assume that powerful actors are involved in some conspiracy to do with the virus. Suggestions it could be a bioweapon that's human made, or there's links with 5G, for example. But... It's us trying to understand the world, when we are in this chaotic world that we are in.
4: So why wouldn't we rather turn to science than some theory that somebody might have dreamt up for, is it commercial purposes on Facebook? Mm
5: -hmm. Well, with conspiracy theories, it's scapegoats. It blames a, a bunch of conspirators for wrongdoings. With COVID-19 in particular, we obviously don't know all the answers. There's so much uncertainty with regards to how we, how we eradicate it and, you know, of course, also the real origins. So this kind of can breed that conspiracy narrative and people want to understand what has happened when we don't have the answers. So in that moment, to say it's a government conspiracy, it's human-made, offers a scapegoat, the reason this is happening is because of that conspiracy. So whilst it may seem you know, rational, shall we say, to believe in the official story, that official story may not address the self needs that we have, i.e. to feel secure, to feel safe.
4: So, so is there a different need between the spreaders, which when people that sort of, you know, send it on, on a WhatsApp group and the people who actually create these
5: stories? Really good question. I think it's hard to tease apart people who just share it and those who share believe it. Because in psychology, where we ask people's beliefs in conspiracy theories, it's always about, you know, what percent, what, what do you believe in this belief? particular conspiracy and get them to indicate that and then we know that is correlated or is associated with people sharing that information so seeing it in the real world we have to maybe assume that people who do share it share it because they it matches their prior beliefs it matches what they already believe which in essence could be one way to also stop the sharing of misinformation whereby we have people stop and think am i just sharing this because i believe it or am i just sharing this because i believe it and also i think it's it's probably just meeting my prior beliefs actually it's probably not that true it just sounds good it makes me feel good and if people can stop and think they then then therefore might not share it as as widely as they may have done
4: some of the conspiracy theories are actually taken on by government. What is the motive behind that? Because governments are out of control, they also want to blame somebody else?
5: (laughs) Well, with conspiracy theories, they're often believed by the in-group towards the out group So it's an in-group process whereby we want to see us as different from other people. So the example being the Americans are believing the conspiracy theories about the Chinese. And similarly, the Chinese are believing about the Americans. So it's one way to kind of maintain self-esteem and to show how we're different from other people. And this intricate process can also breed conspiracy theories. That's just one example. There are many, many other different examples with regards to, example, politics. Democrats believe in conspiracy theories about the Republicans and Republicans about the Democrats. It's... That's integral difference. So with regards to the governments, I suggest they're playing such a similar role, whereby it's seen how they're different from others. And the Chinese are conspiring, but then also the Chinese believe the Americans Americans are conspiring. And of course the Russians, etc., are also playing a role as well. So, integral processes, I would argue.
4: What interventions can there be to make sure that these rumours are not spread in crisis
5: times like these? Well, interventions are definitely timely, but it is, of course, difficult. It's potentially think about it as two different groups of people interventions for the general population, interventions for those at the high end of the conspiracy theorizing. For those in the more general, we know that counter arguments do work. So, inoculating people with the facts can reduce belief in conspiracy theories. And, of course, also instilling critical thinking abilities. We know those who think more critically are less likely to believe in conspiracy theories. So it could be, in essence, based on our skill sets. For those at the higher end, when they're giving arguments, they may discredit it, because they're distrustful of those around them. So instead, it's reframing how we discuss conspiracy theories and their beliefs with those believers. It could be becoming a trusted messenger where you are able to discuss their beliefs with that person, not in an aggressive way, but in a more supportive way, whereby it suggests that it could be that affirming the values based on critical thinking abilities could be one route. Because these people may believe they're being critical, where they're asking questions, but they may not be evaluating the evidence as fully as they could be. So in, instead, asking them to think about the evidence, asking them to think about the source, what the person has said and reaffirm that back to their beliefs and get to think with a critical eye on their actual conspiracy belief and get to think through that. These could be some ways that could kind of change conspiracy theorising but it's a challenge and it definitely needs to have more work kind of focusing on what we do about them.
4: Well, if you look at people like the flat earthers, I mean you can show them (laughs) the earth from a distance and they'd still say, no, (laughs) it's a conspiracy.
5: So it's, it's back to that incident. Trust, trust the scientists, trust the people around them, make them feel empowered so they're not engaged in, it, in this mindset. But it's difficult. It's difficult.
4: Is the COVID-19 period leading to a more trust in science now?
5: I did see that trust in scientists is actually quite high in one of the polls last week. So people in general do seem to be trusting the scientists, which I think is a really positive step. Of course, that everyone does, and that's something that needs to kind of be looked into to ensure they are not engaging in um, dangerous thinking.
4: Yeah. You would talk about critical thinking skills, and you would say, mm. but why do intelligent people believe conspiracy theories? Mm.
5: Well, I think it's because for those, for, not everyone, but for some of those intelligent people, whilst they may have the skill sets, they don't use them. So within, in that moment of, of, of crisis, and uncertainty, falling into some biases, they're just drawn to the conspiracy narrative. So even though they have the skill sets to ask questions, in that moment they're not doing that. So it's a challenge to instill these skills, but then it's the next challenge is to make sure people use them. So there's different ideas to make people think more critically. So for example, one someone suggested that on Twitter, before you retweet something, you have to fill in a question, such as, you know, do you know who this person is, do you trust the source, or do you, something that makes them think about the tweet that they're sharing, so in that moment, they can at least consciously think through before they share it, so in essence, make them think critically, so I think a better solution could be to do it every now and again, so every couple of posts, you ask a question. So it's not all the time, it's just ensuring people start to be primed to think more critically. That could be quite, a, quite a, you know, an interesting way to do it, that the social media companies may also, you know, like or kind of support. <laughs> Inside COVID-19, from business. News.
4: African countries have responded quickly to impose COVID-19 lockdowns and curfews, but a recent Ipsos study in 20 African countries have highlighted what the economic cost of lockdowns have had on their populations. A large proportion of the 20,000 respondents indicated that food and water would be a problem if they are forced to stay at home for 14 days while half have indicated that they would run out of money. The study was produced by a Partnership for Evidence-Based Response to COVID-19, or PERC, which is a public-private partnership to find measures to reduce the impact of COVID-19 on African countries. At a media briefing, the director of the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. John Nkason, said the report also indicated that many Africans felt they were not informed about COVID-19.
2: Key findings of this survey include one-third or 32 percent respondents said they did not have enough information about the coronavirus, including how it spread and how to protect themselves. Across the 20 countries, less than half of the respondents or 44% said they were at high personal risk for COVID-19. Nearly 70% of the respondents said food and water would be a problem if they were required to remain at home for 14 days and over half would run out of money. The population has some knowledge of COVID-19 and understands the need for public health and social measures, but the ability to implement them without significant hardship is limited. Governments must support the vulnerable. Policymakers can make use of the data in this report to make informed decisions and Africa CDC will provide guidance and support for them to do this. With that in mind, the report makes three key recommendations to governments across the continent. One, while caseloads remain low, they should build public health capacity to test, trace, isolate, and treat cases, which my colleague, Dr. Frieden, will speak on shortly. Secondly, to monitor data on how public health and social measures address local COVID-19 conditions and meet the needs. This will help determine when and how to lift or relax measures in a way that balances between lives and livelihoods. Thirdly, engage communities to adapt public health and social measures to the local context and effectively communicate about risks to sustain public support, achieve widespread adherence and shield vulnerable populations. Also, we have Since security undermines our ability to respond to outbreaks, we must respond with a human rights approach. As the pandemic evolves, so will this platform by bringing together key data sources to support countries and allow us all to adapt and learn. And lastly, COVID-19 is not just a health crisis, it is a political and social crisis as well. All sectors must work together the community, the government, the private sector, and the non-profit, political leaders, and the health sector to drive our decision-making and the next phase of of the response. We must however pay attention to the human rights of the population as we uh, consolidate and coordinate our efforts to respond to this pandemic.
4: Dr. Tom Frieden, the president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives, which is an initiative funded by the Bloombergs, Gates and Zuckerberg families, said Africa has to prepare for the worst, even though caseloads are still low.
6: The explosive growth of COVID-19 cases seen in other parts of the world has not yet materialized in Africa. We don't know why. We don't know if this is something that will change in the coming weeks or months but it should not provide false hope. It remains critical to prepare for the worst even as we hope for the best. To prepare now and prepare also for a lasting recovery, we have to do three things. First, while caseloads remain low, build public health capacity to test, isolate, trace and treat cases. The box it in strategy that is an essential component of actions to reopen society as soon and safely as possible. Second, we must protect our healthcare workers. They're the front line of the response and we must protect their lives while they work to save ours. Third, we must continue essential services for non-COVID conditions, including maternal care, HIV, TB, malaria, vaccination, chronic disease and more. We recall that during the Ebola epidemic in West Africa, more people died because of Ebola than from it, because of the interruption of treatments for malaria, HIV, TB, maternal and child health causes. Testing is crucially important. Public health must be able to identify those who are infected, including people who do not have any signs or symptoms. That means adequate supplies, laboratory technicians, reporting systems, so that patients learn of their results promptly. Isolation is also crucially important. And while this may happen at home in many households, this cannot be done safely. And countries and communities should consider making separate housing available for the infected to curtail the spread. Third, contact tracing, crucially important. And it's been really encouraging to see the uh, very effective work done in Africa on contact tracing. It's something that we're just scaling up now in parts of the US. And quarantine of those who are uh, contacts. The virus spreads through a web and the key is to stop that web at any step possible. We need to disrupt as many connections in the web as possible. And we also need to ensure that we're treating cases effectively, caring for patients in a safe environment and protecting healthcare workers who deserve every protection. When health systems complete these steps, we can better contain the spread of COVID-19 and relieve pressure on the healthcare system itself. The bottom line, we have a long journey ahead. We are just at the beginning of this pandemic. It will be a difficult time and there will be difficult decisions for decision makers to make. Also for healthcare workers and communities and individuals. The best way to make a good decision is to make an informed decision. This means that data from this report and others, this means better information about everything from attitudes to mobility, to symptoms, to tests, to deaths. This needs to be strengthened. We need to take this opportunity and crisis to know that every community should know the essential features that are happening there in order to guide their response. By understanding what's happening with the virus, what's happening in each community, together, governments, healthcare system and people together can combat this terrible pandemic.
4: Dr. Machidi Di Mueti the Regional Director for Africa of the World Health Organization, said the big challenges for Africa are food security and to continue other regular medical services to combat malaria, Ebola
7: and HIV-AIDS during the lockdown. I think it's it's said very well in the report, giving South Africa as an example, where they analysed, if you like, and mapped different types of economic activity, identified those that are absolutely essential, including for the response to the pandemic, and then have a, a a graduated approach to releasing progressively based on data as to, if you like, the the testing the contact tracing that is going on the trend in cases and progressively letting go and releasing um, economic activity to go on because i think it's already been said it is the, the economic impact of the pandemic is going to be great anyway and the measures are merely sharpening and making that worse on the most vulnerable populations so there needs to be a combination of uh, gradually releasing analyzing the most critical economic activities that are to continue including in some countries agriculture we've been very concerned about the lockdowns and their impact on agriculture for the future not only for now in African countries knowing that so many uh, such high proportions of the population are dependent on agriculture so I think it is this database evidence-based analysis and release and progressively um, making the changes that's going to try and keep the balance, and the balance is extremely important, as has already been said. We we need to protect and ensure the delivery of services, but not then make that constitute a risk for transmission of the COVID-19 pandemic. And this is a very big challenge that we're helping countries think through now, how to provide immunization services for children while respecting physical distancing, for example. How to make sure that people are patient enough to wait and make sure that people can move because in some countries, the lockdowns are quite strict. You need almost a permit to be able to get from one place to another. So we're working with countries to really bring this down to the implementation level and make it very practical, uh, taking into consideration the, the importance of continuing these services. I mean, already food security is a very big challenge in, in the African region. And we have recognized it's already been said at the household level, that uh, there are people who are food insecure already before this happened. And this can, is only exacerbating, exacerbated by their inability to earn their daily bread, literally if they cannot move and run their little stall at the market or even buy their food. And more importantly, then in the longer term by the inability to bring in some of the supplies that are needed for agriculture in a time that will enable the planting, etc., to happen in such time that when the, you know, the harvest happens when it is when it is needed. We we are working um at the regional level with the other UN agencies, with the Food and Agriculture Organization, with the World Food Programme, and they are paying attention to this, very much supporting those multisectoral platforms that have been put in place in countries. Um the WFP is working now to set up a transportation system. And uh, here I'd like very much to thank the African Union and the Bureau for having sensitized the Heads of State on the need to open up humanitarian corridors to enable goods and people to be flown into countries despite these social and physical distancing measures. This is vitally important on the continent.
2: Maybe just to uh, supplement that and say that, I mean, food security, even for Africa, even in ordinary times, has been a challenge. And there's no doubt that the situation is going to get a little bit more challenged with the COVID-19 pandemic. So I totally agree with Dr. Moiti's submission that uh, unique and particular attention needs to be uh, devoted to the issues of food security. And at the level of the African Union Commission, they are taking that very, very seriously. There's um, a whole committee that is governed by the Commission of Royal Affairs that is looking into that uh, aspect They are bringing ministers together and senior leadership across governments to examine uh, the, the position and policies that need to be in place.
0: This has been episode 30 of Inside COVID-19 I'm Alec Hogg Until tomorrow Cheerio